0: So as we live our lives as human beings, we meet a lot of conditions. Um, And these are conditions that affect every one of us, um, no matter who we are. And the Buddha highlighted these, highlighted eight of these conditions in particular, pairs of opposites, as um, things that affect all of us. He calls them the Eight Worldly Wins, and they are praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, and pleasure and pain. Our usual response to these uh, eight conditions is to want more of gain, pleasure, fame, and uh, praise, and less of their opposites. And the Buddha basically says, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. You're going to be subject to these eight conditions. And so trying to manipulate our lives to have more of the ones that we like and less of the ones we don't like is a recipe for suffering. So I'd like to read you some parts of a, a sutta in which he talks about these, he, uh, the translator here calls them the failings of the world all of them being the failings of the world, not just the uh, the loss, the pain, but also the gain, the praise, are failings of the world. And the Buddha says, for an uninstructed run-of-the-mill person, there arise gain, loss, status, disgrace, censure, praise, pleasure, and pain. These are... Tanisaro Bhikkhu's translations of these eight worldly winds. For a well-instructed disciple of the noble ones, there also arise gain, loss, status, disgrace, censure, praise, pleasure, and pain. So, what's the difference between these two? So, here he's really highlighting and pointing out that even as a uh, someone who has become free from um, clinging, someone who is fully awakened. They are not free from these conditions that praise and blame will come at someone who even is fully awakened. The Buddha himself was blamed. So what is the difference he says? Gain arises for an uninstructed run of the mill person. He does not reflect gain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. He does not discern it as it actually is. And he goes through all the other seven, loss, status, disgrace, etc. These factors arise. They are inconstant, stressful, subject to change. A run-of-the-mill person does not discern it as it actually is. His mind remains consumed with gain his mind remains consumed with loss. He welcomes the arisen gain and rebels against the arisen loss. As he thus is engaged in welcoming and rebelling, he is not released from sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, or despair. He is not released from suffering and stress. Now gain arises for a well-instructed noble disciple. She reflects... Gain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. She discerns it as it actually is. Her mind does not remain consumed with gain. Her mind does not remain consumed with loss. She does not welcome the arisen gain or rebel against the arisen loss. As she thus abandons welcoming and rebelling, she is released from suffering. Gain, loss, status, disgrace, censure, praise, pleasure, pain. These conditions among human beings are inconstant, impermanent, and subject to change. Knowing this, the wise person, mindful, ponders these changing conditions. Desirable things don't charm the mind. Undesirable things bring no resistance. Welcoming and rebelling are scattered, gone to their end, do not exist. This... uh, abandoning, of welcoming, and rebelling, or of being charmed, or resisting. That was the other way it was put in that sutta. That is um, often talked about as the quality of equanimity. And this is what I'd like to speak about today. This is also one of the ten paramis, the ten perfections, the quality of equanimity. So just to kind of get a sense of this quality, what is this quality of equanimity, a few ways to understand it. It is a balance of mind, a mind that is non-reactive to these worldly winds, non-reactive to what is pleasant or unpleasant. One, One can remain balanced, kind of in the middle, experiencing these changing conditions but not Pulled around by them, not blown around by them, these worldly winds. This quality of equanimity can bring a feeling of spaciousness in the mind, a mind that is not constricted or tight around experience. Brings a sense of ease with what is happening, quality of acceptance of things as they are, a kind of impartiality to experience. Sometimes um, there's a a teaching, I don't know exactly where it comes from, but uh, kind of a it said we don't side with anything. We don't take any sides. This is that flavor of impartiality. This uh, quality of equanimity is distinct from indifference or apathy. we, I think, sometimes perhaps confuse a mind that is non-reactive with a mind that doesn't care. But the mind that is balanced, that is equanimous, actually can feel more deeply the sorrows and joys of the world. So it's not a matter of not caring. It's, it's a matter of opening the heart and being able to receive all, all experience and not being tipped off balance by whatever happens. So it's not indifference. It's not disconnection from experience. It's an intimate connection with experience that allows us to be with whatever happens. As with uh, patience, as I talked about patience the other night, sometimes the quality of patience we think of as being associated with non-action. Sometimes we think the same with equanimity, that it means that if we're perfectly balanced that we won't do anything. That, that, that it, it's, it means non-action. That is not what the uh, understanding is. Um, the one one um, way of understanding equanimity is um, through the model of av- Avilokiteshvara who is the bodhisattva of compassion, a being that responds to the cries of the world. In responding to the cries of the world, Aviloka is not uh, pulled off balance, is not drowned in the suffering of others, but is able to respond skillfully with compassion. And so we can respond out of compassion, we can respond out of generosity, out of, Joy, when the open heart meets joy, it reverberates with that joy and responds in kind. So equanimity allows us to meet experience and respond skillfully. So this is a distinction between responding and reacting. When we react, we are being blown around by these conditions. We are being uh, blown around, not only by the conditions from outside, but also from the conditions inside our own minds. That when unpleasant experience arises, our own mind creates this worldly wind of, this is not okay, I can't experience this, I have to get rid of this. And we're blown around by our own mind. The mind of equanimity can remain solid and stable, unshakable, with whatever happens. So we act, we can act out of equanimity and that balance of mind allows us to take skillful action and also allows us to be balanced around the results of that action. So that there's no demand for a particular result of our actions. So cultivating equanimity how do we begin to nourish this quality in our hearts? There are two basic ways to cultivate any quality I think. I mean all of the paramis we can consider from this, these two lenses we can cultivate uh, a wholesome quality by studying what's in its way. Getting really familiar with all the ways that we are not that thing, not that quality. And so I talked with patients about studying impatience as a way to to move towards patience. We get to know impatience really well. Likewise with equanimity, we cultivate an understanding of what's in its way, of what's, what's blocking equanimity. And that is largely reactivity. So, getting familiar with reactivity is one way to cultivate equanimity. Another way to cultivate equanimity or any of these wholesome qualities is by beginning to understand the conditions that support the quality. So, cultivating the causes and conditions that help to bring that quality into being. For equanimity also, there is a formal equanimity practice like there is with the loving-kindness practice that we're doing in the evening, but I probably won't have time to talk about that today. I just wanted to mention that there is a, a formal practice to cultivate the quality of equanimity through reflection, very much the way we're doing it with the metta practice. So I'd like to go through some ways we can study what gets in the way of equanimity and how this helps us to cultivate equanimity, and some ways that we can cultivate the conditions that support equanimity. So, one of the main conditions that gets in the way of equanimity is that when we meet the world, we meet experience, we are not able to meet it as it is. It comes up in our experience, pleasant experience, unpleasant experience, and we don't just leave it there. We want more of the pleasant. We want to get rid of the unpleasant. And so we are we're not just simply content to rest with things coming up in experience. Things as they are. This, this term, things as they are, is actually a term that's used quite a bit in the in the suttas it was used in this uh, this text Um, one does not reflect gain has arisen for me one does not discern it as it actually is that term does not discern it as it actually is the Pali for that is yata bhuta things as they are things as they have come to be and that the uh that as our mind develops, we are more and more able to meet things as they are. So things come into being. Unpleasant experience comes into being. These four of the eight worldly winds loss, pain, blame, disrepute. We're not often not able to just simply notice, oh, loss has arisen for me. We think, why me? How can I get rid of this? I must have done something wrong. So we're not able to just notice, oh, loss has arisen. And as the, the, the text says, we don't discern it as inconstant suffering subject to change. We think of it as being, oh, this loss has arisen, it's going to be like this forever. We don't think of it as being something that will change. So we struggle with it, think, imputing a kind of permanence to it. We struggle with it, thinking we need to fix it, change it. We wish it were some other way. So with that wishing, with that wanting to get rid of that quality of aversion, we are motivated into action to do something to try to get rid of this experience. And when we start to really look at what's going on in our minds, we see that the main struggle in our minds is not the loss itself, but the wanting it to be some other way this this is hard to to grasp initially it's hard to believe that the loss itself is not a problem as we start to explore though we do start to get a taste of this from time to time we start to get a taste of what it means when we when we just accept the loss accept this experience now again acceptance may not may mean kind of allowing, not taking action to try to change it, but it also may mean um, acting out of compassion for yourself. You know, if, in having a loss, a major kind of loss, a loss of a loved one for instance, you may need to take some action to, uh, you know, in meeting that, to help you meet it, to support yourself with other friends. to. Uh, find ways to help you meet that loss. So the, the wanting itself, the wanting it to be another way, is a large part of our struggle. So beginning to look at that wanting itself, and seeing, actually, when we see wanting disappear, our whole relationship to what we want or want to get rid of changes. And we see that actually it's not the thing out there in the world that's the problem, it's our relationship to it. It's the wanting itself. I said this yesterday, this quote from Ajahn Sumedho, it's a great relief to accept things the way they are because the only real misery is wanting to see them in some other way. And then there's the other side of these eight worldly wins the pleasure, the gain, the fame, the praise. We want these, we want more of them. We think that our life is a success if we have only those four worldly wins. Unfortunately, that's not the way life goes. We will get some of, some of one, some of another. And so, one thing we can begin to recognize is that they are impersonal. We take them personally. We take both the, the, the positive ones and the negative ones personally. We think that when we have the gain, the praise, the uh, fame, and the pleasure, that it means we're doing things well, that we're a good person, and when we get the other, we figure we've made some mistake, we've done something wrong, we're a failure. And the Buddha proposes, they're just going to come. They have nothing to do with us in particular. So with the, the, the ones that we consider positive, we tend to try to hold on to them. We tend to uh, want more of them. And we, again, we feel like we're a failure if we don't get them. And so this points to what we could call the danger of these uh, positive ones. That, um, you know, while they're happening, they might feel pretty good. And yet they will go away. And so if we're clinging to them, holding to them, we're going to suffer when they go away. You know praise, for instance, you know, praise depends upon the opinions of other people and, uh, you know, how reliable are the opinions of other people, you know, they change so quickly. So we um, we suffer when we experience these states and they go away. We also suffer if we're trying to get them and we fail in some way. So. These qualities, even the ones that we think are good, that we want, they have a kind of a danger associated with them. Because they are inconstant, because they are impermanent, they are inherently unreliable as a source of happiness, of lasting happiness. They are a source of some kind of happiness for us. And the Buddha acknowledges that, actually. He says, yes, these things are a source of happiness, but it's not a, very, not a very good happiness, he says. You know, yeah, it's happiness, but how long does it last? You know, it lasts for a few days maybe, or even a year for some things. But, you know, ultimately it doesn't last. And what happens when they go away and we've relied on them, if we're relying on them as being a place for our happiness, our happiness goes with them. And so he's pointing to the quality of equanimity being a place where we can more reliably be happy. With the non-reactivity to these states. Now again, it's not a not caring. It's a feeling almost more deeply. The pleasures and, or the joys and sorrows of the world. So, we could call reactivity uh, the far enemy of equanimity. It is it is the, the opposite of equanimity. It is um, the very thing that is completely opposite to equanimity. So, much of our practice is actually noticing this reactivity. Now, we can't simply you know, in recognizing, okay, reactivity is in the way of equanimity. We can't just go, be gone! Reactivity, you know, that's not the way our minds work. Our minds are entrenched with this habit of reactivity. And so we, we need to learn how to cultivate what we might say is a balance of mind or an equanimity about reactivity. So we, we observe the equanimity over and over again. We, I'm sorry, we observe the reactivity over and over again. We notice how we're reacting, how we're holding, how we're pushing away. And over time, as we are willing to meet pleasant experience, unpleasant experience, and how we react to that, we may start to see some shifts in our mind. We may start to see, for instance, a little bit of space around something that was formerly really difficult. So we get a sense of, it's okay, you know, I st- we're still feeling the difficulty, but we have a sense of, I can be with this, I can meet this. So there's not as much reactivity. So we begin to see we're moving in the direction of less reactivity. And we experience the benefit of that. We feel the benefit of that. Sometimes, as we're observing our reactivity, and I'll, I'd like to encourage you, you know, pick some kind of wanting, something in your experience where you really want something, that you feel that pull. And instead of acting on that wanting, see if you can observe that wanting until it goes away. Anushka talked about this. At some point, you know, noticing that quality of wanting. Now, to me, when I want something, want either want to do something or uh, want to have something, it almost feels like a magnet is pulling me. You know, like that, like there's this irresistible force to pull me in that direction. You know, it might be towards a piece of chocolate or towards, you know, some something a little bit more substantial. It might be in. in In walking meditation on one retreat, I was really drawn to want to look at people. So it was a three-month course and we had been strongly encouraged not to look at people while walking. And so initially, uh, I was walking around kind of with a forceful, I had blinders on, it's like, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look at these people. And I was like, you know, just looking like six inches in front of the ground in front of me, forcing myself to not look trying to do lifting, moving, placing. I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look. Lifting, moving, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to (laughs) look. Finally it occurred to me, oh, wanting is happening right now. Maybe I should pay attention to the wanting. I had been kind of in a way repressing the wanting through that, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look. I hadn't been turning to it, acknowledging it. Finally it's like, okay, well wanting's happening. Maybe I should notice that. So without following through on the wanting, without looking at people, I began to notice that magnetic pull. Began to notice when it came into being. Began to notice when it disappeared. And one of the things I noticed was that, you know, I was doing my walking meditation, you know, noticing my movement of my legs and my feet, and somebody would come into my field of vision. Wanting would begin immediately. So I'd notice it, I'd feel that pull. It's like, you know, okay, just feel feel that pull, feel that, just feel the pull. Uh, What I really began to appreciate by feeling that was that that wanting itself was suffering. It was unpleasant. It did not feel good to want. There's an inherent sense of lack that springs up when we want something. The wanting itself creates that sense of lack. There's not an inherent sense of lack the wanting creates the sense of lack. And so it feels feels like there's something that we need to do about it. And that's been our conditioning. Take action, get the thing, do the thing, look at the person. That's what will make that feeling of lack go away. Instead, rather than following through on that, I was just observing. What is that feeling? What does it feel like? What does that feeling of lack feel like? What does that pull feel like? And then I began to notice that you know, as the person wandered through my field of vision, again, you know, it got kind of tempting to, you know, all I'd have to do when they're walking in front of me is just look up. I didn't do that. I was just noticing, noticing the pull. And then they'd like go up the stairs, go into the building. The wanting disappeared. That was pretty cool. You know, that, that was like, wow. You know, it felt so, so strong and so much like it needed to be acted on that to see it just vanish. This is like being released from a vice grip. The wanting disappeared, the feeling of lack disappeared, no problem. So exploring this, exploring in your own experience, finding perhaps some place in your retreat where there is a wanting, and observing that wanting. This is getting to know this reactivity. When that wanting disappears, we taste that feeling of equanimity. We taste that, that sense of balance of mind, that sense of no lack. So, as we do this exploration, the mind begins to understand how it contributes to our own suffering. This wanting itself, we see, we see so clearly that the wanting itself is the creation of that feeling of lack. The mind is creating that feeling of lack. It's not inherent. So we start to see, as we observe this reactivity, we start to see how the mind itself generates our suffering. So whenever there's an experience of struggle, of difficulty, whether it's wanting something or wanting to get rid of something, we can look at that as an opportunity to cultivate equanimity through exploring it, understanding it, observing it, being willing to witness it. In the, um, the understanding of the way experience happens, in um, the way the Buddha kind of clearly saw into how our experience is created and how reactivity is formed, the Buddha highlighted one key piece of experience that's really helpful to begin to recognize and understand in terms of exploring reactivity and understanding how it happens. And that is this aspect of whether experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. All experience has this flavor. We're not going to stop this flow of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experience. This again, uh, the Buddha said, uh, an ordinary person experiences pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience and an enlightened person experiences pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience. What's the difference between them? The enlightened person doesn't react. The ordinary person is frustrated by unpleasant and wants more pleasant. So the uh, exploration, one of the explorations to get to know how reactivity forms, is basically, the Buddha says, reactivity is born off of this pleasant unpleasant. That when something is pleasant, we like it, we want it, we want more of it, greed is born. When something is unpleasant, we don't like it, we want to get rid of it, aversion is born. And here we have non-equanimity, we have reactivity. And so if we can begin to kind of recognize, oh, this is pleasant experience, this is unpleasant experience, we can, through the mindfulness of that, when the mind is aware, mindful of experience, it has, we have the possibility, or the mind has the possibility of just meeting that, and not spinning into reactivity. And so mindfulness of the pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant aspects of experience can be a great aid to us in supporting a cultivation of equanimity. So that's just something for your exploration. Noticing the pleasant-unpleasant, in particular the pleasant-unpleasant quality, very helpful in terms of beginning to recognize how greed and aversion come into being. As I mentioned earlier, the, the near enemy, or the, the, the kind of often confused with equanimity is this quality of indifference, and that could be called the near enemy of equanimity. It is something that looks kind of like equanimity, but has um, some kind of clinging or mm, stickiness associated with it. So while indifference may seem like you know, there's no stickiness, There actually is a kind of, it's a stickiness of not knowing, it's a stickiness of, sometimes it's actually a stickiness of aversion, you know, like the indifference is a flavor of like, well, I just don't care. I just don't care, you know. But there is a kind of an aversion there. It's like, well, you know, whatever, as my niece says a lot, you know, whatever. (laughs) That's that quality of a little bit of indifferent, uh, you know, a little bit of aversion to the indifference. So one of my friends in exploring this quality of equanimity had a, had a great way of putting this. She says, you know, in, indifference has that sense of, I don't care. But equanimity is, I don't mind this. And so that was a really great reflection for me, you know, that it's not, I don't care. It's, I don't mind this. So, studying this sense of indifference as it comes up. You know, if you have a sense of, I don't care, get familiar with that also. And you might begin to notice a little, this little shift from, I don't care, to, I don't mind this. And there's, while it's a little shift, it's a big difference. It's a big difference in how we relate to our experience. There is also a kind of uh, what we could call an equanimity of unknowing. Um, The Buddha describes this as the equanimity um, of this ordinary person. The equanimity of the household life, he says. What are the what is the equanimity based on the household life? On having an experience of the senses, so he's talking about this with respect to the sense spaces that Anushka mentioned this morning, on having, seeing a sight, hearing a sound, smelling a smell, etc. On having an experience, equanimity, equanimity arises in an ordinary person who has not conquered their limitations or conquered the results of action and who is blind to danger. Such equanimity as this does not tra- transcend the experience." So this kind of equanimity is kind of an equanimity based on not really clearly seeing, as, as it said, the danger. Not seeing the danger, as I talked a little bit about earlier, that not seeing how um, gain, for instance, is um, unreliable, it's inconstant, we may have a sense of, oh, I'm fine with this gain. You know, I'm not attached to this game. But it's, it's through not seeing things as they are that this equanimity arises. So as an example, for, for, for instance, um, we may have a sense of equanimity about our possessions because we feel like we have control over them when that illusion of control is burst by some event. you know It could be as dramatic as a plane falling out of the sky and landing on your house. This happened a couple weeks ago. A navy jet crashed into an apartment building. Fortunately, no one died, but many people lost all their possessions. You know, that can happen. We don't have control. So the equanimity around our possessions can be based on the sense of having control. And that control is an illusion. So the the deeper kind of equanimity is based on truly, clearly acknowledging this is inconstant, this is unreliable, and the mind is balanced around it. So we can also support equanimity, cultivate equanimity, through looking at things that or the conditions that support it. What are the conditions that support equanimity? One of the, um, one of the supports for equanimity is um, concentration. If we look at some of the lists, one of the lists of the Buddha is the Seven Factors of Awakening. And uh, in that list, it's kind of you know it's kind of like the Paramis in that they 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 they're they're all cultivated together. But there is a kind of a sense that the cultivation of one supports the cultivation of the next. They kind of um, strengthen each other in that way. And in that list, concentration precedes equanimity. So how does concentration support equanimity? Basically, as we uh, settle into concentration the hindrances that we talked about earlier dissipate. The mind becomes stable, non-reactive, based on cultivating this, um, you know, coming back to the present moment over and over again. The mind becomes stable. And in that very stability, it is much less reactive. So we get a taste, we start to get a taste of equanimity as the mind moves into concentration. We see that, you know, a thought arises and you know, it's like, oh, there's a thought. And it doesn't have, it's like, Gil sometimes talks about Teflon mind. You know, that the thought just kind of goes through, it doesn't have anything to stick to. So, when the mind gets concentrated, there's like more Teflon in the mind. The the thoughts just don't stick as much. So, things that might arise, a thought that might arise, oh that person did that thing. It's like, oh yeah, okay. Whereas, when the mind is not concentrated, it sticks, and we, that person did that thing, and they shouldn't have done that thing, and how can I tell them how they shouldn't do that thing, and we're not supposed to talk here, and how am I going to do this? Oh, I better write a note to the teachers. And the mind just proliferates. So we can see the difference as the mind gets settled. We can start to recognize this quality of non-reactivity as the mind settles in concentration. So we get a taste of the non-reactive mind as the mind settles down in concentration. Continuity of mindfulness also supports equanimity. Continuity of mindfulness is actually the underlying condition for concentration to develop. So what happens with you know, continuity of mindfulness is like every moment, just meeting experience with mindfulness, it's like we just meet, oh, there's, there's an unpleasant experience, there's a sound, there's a, a, a sight, there's a dryness, there's a vibration, there's a, there's a calm, there's a, and we just meeting moment after moment, next thing, next thing. There's no room for reactivity to arise. The mind is just meeting experience one moment after the other. So mindfulness and concentration both support equanimity. So cultivating these qualities, cultivating mindfulness, cultivating the stability of mind, will aid you in the direction of becoming balanced. Wisdom and insight are also uh, supports for equanimity this is uh, referred to following on here the Buddha talks about the six kinds of equanimity based on renunciation so we're tying into the theme that Anushka talked about last night. What are the six kinds of equanimity based on renunciation? And the six kinds are the six kinds associated with the six sense bases. So, Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and things happening in the mind. When, by knowing the impermanence, change, fading away, and cessation of experience through these six sense spaces, one sees, as it actually is with proper wisdom, that experience, both formerly and now, are all impermanent, suffering, and subject to change, equanimity arises. So this is... Essentially, the acknowledgement of how wisdom supports the arising of equanimity. As we begin to meet our experience as impermanent, unreliable, equanimity starts to grow. So, there is the meeting of experience from this perspective. from a foundation of understanding. There's another form of understanding that supports equanimity, and that is the understanding of karma. We've talked a little bit about karma, and so I'm I'm not going to do a whole talk on karma. That can be several hours. (laughs) The karma is essentially, it's a natural law of cause and effect. It's not... um, it's not something that's been created by uh, humans, essentially. It's not, it's not like law, the law of, um, you know, you, get, you park in the wrong spot, you get a parking ticket, or you, you know, steal something, you go to jail. It's not that kind of law. It's more like the law of gravity, that if you, you know, you hold something up, you're not going to be able to put it on the air, you know, it's going to fall. It's a natural law, the law of gravity. And likewise, the Buddha describes karma as a natural law. He compares it in one sutta to the law of gravity. That it is simply the natural consequences, is if we act out of greed, aversion, and delusion, suffering will follow. uh, that, That quote of the Dhammapada that Anushka referred to this morning, All experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with an impure mind, a mind filled with greed, aversion, or delusion. And suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. So this is an expression of the law of karma, that acting out of greed, aversion, and delusion, suffering will follow. Now it may not follow immediately, may not be the next moment, but it will follow at some point. Speak or act with a pure mind, a wholesome mind, out of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, then happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So the law of karma is basically this understanding that when we speak or act from this place of greed, aversion, and delusion, we're heading into suffering. Speak or act with non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, we head towards happiness. So choosing skillfully. It's not so much the action itself that the Buddha is pointing to here, it is the quality of mind that imbues the action. So if we're acting out of greed, aversion, or delusion, that's what the Buddha says is important to look at, to recognize, to understand acting out of non-greed non-aversion non-delusion it's the, it's the quality of mind that's most important so as we um, understand karma as we begin to see how karma unfolds in our own life we, we see this this law unfolding it's a law, a lawful unfolding we see that how we are what what's happening now the feeling of what's happening now is related to our choices from the past and while we can't change our past choices we can choose to respond skillfully now and this is how we can turn it's like turning a battleship you know it's not a it's not a quick process it's not just like one shift of a moment it's moment after moment meeting experience as skillfully as possible what's happened in our past is conditioned what's happening here and now. How we respond here and now is what's conditioning our future. So we can change our future by responding skillfully now. We don't have to go down the course of uh, you know, never-ending suffering. We can start to turn our course towards happiness through how we respond now. So, seeing this how this supports equanimity, at least for me, I I really feel this, that when I truly understand this law of karma, there's a kind of a, a relaxing around what's happened now. It's like, well, this is happening. Of course it's like this. You know, this is the way it is because of choices from the past. The experience now, I can't change this experience now. And so there can be a little bit of a relaxation around that and knowing that it's how I respond now that takes me forward. So the mind can be more balanced knowing that what's come into being has come into being as a result of causes and conditions, choices that have been made by a process, this process of mind and body, And this process, there can be choices that shift our direction. So this kind of heads us into the terrain too of a a kind of a misunderstanding at times around uh, karma. That um, in understanding the sense of, okay, well, it's choices from the past that are impacting what's happening now, and choices that I'm making now that will impact the future. We think, well, it's me that made the choices in the past, and it's me that's making the choices now. And that's a misunderstanding of karma, you know, that, that it's somehow that I am the experiencing the results of my past actions and I can now control my future. Karma, the, the understanding of karma um, um, you know, doesn't necessarily um, free us from this uh, misperception around self. This misperception that Anushka was talking about yesterday afternoon—that we we impute a sense of self to our experience. So there is now the Buddha talked about what we think of as self as being a set of causes and conditions arising. He he describes how this happens. He says that. Experience arises, there's contact with our sense bases, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling quality associated with that experience. And based on that pleasant, unpleasant, neutral quality there is a a reaction. We want something, we want to get rid of something. And there's no we here, it's just a natural kind of habitual thing. There's the arising of pleasant, unpleasant, and based on that unpleasant or pleasant experience there's an arising of wanting. Based on that wanting, there's a conditioning towards having. A conditioning towards having or getting rid of. And based on that is a kind of an identity that begins to form around needing to have, needing to get rid of, someone who is doing this. So he describes this as just a process of conditions coming into being. What we call self, he describes as a process. So there's something there. There's a process happening. There's a set of causes and conditions unfolding. But what we typically ascribe to be a thing, a person, is a misperception. We misperceive our experience. And and essentially construct or create this sense of self. So this... Um, Recognition, this correcting this misperception as we begin to um, recognize that it is a misperception, this greatly supports equanimity because a large part of our reactivity is born from this sense, this misperception that there is someone that needs to be pre- protected, defended, that needs to have things. That the very wanting and aversion are rooted in this misperception of self. If there is no, uh, if that if that misperception is seen through, there's no need for greed or aversion. And greed or aversion are outspringings of this misperception of self, and so this understanding around not self. You know, just at first it's an understanding that is kind of perhaps reflective, perhaps not. Perhaps it's like, well, I don't get that, you know. Leave it aside. Just keep observing your experience. Keep observing what's happening. The degree to which we understand that this sense of self is a misperception not an actual entity to be protected or defended, is the degree to which we will experience equanimity. And so wisdom cultivates, supports equanimity. The experience of the insight, the recognition, really deeply supports equanimity. And yet, you know, most of us aren't living from that place of deeply seeing through this misperception around self. So we can, we can, however, use some skillful reflections to support the mind coming into a little bit of balance. We can reflect. The Buddha actually recommends this. This is in the suttas. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not myself. As we come into contact with things that we're reacting to. This is not me. This is not mine. We can reflect, this is unreliable. This is impermanent. So, to, um, to close, I'll read a quote from Nyanaponika Tara about equanimity. He says Equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. But in its perfection and unshakable nature, equanimity is not dull, heartless, and frigid. Its perfection is not due to an emotional emptiness but to a fullness of understanding, to its being complete in itself. Its unshakable nature is not the immovability of a dead cold stone, but the manifestation of the highest strength. The mind stable with equanimity is not actually the goal of practice, but it is the foundation from which the letting go into complete release from suffering can happen. So exploring for yourself this quality, and a lot of it will be through exploring how we are not the This exploration takes us deeper into the foundation of the, the base where we can fully let go. So let's sit for just a moment.